Well, last week we began our Christmas series, Guess Who's Coming to Christmas, and we learned that that we actually have four different accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. We talked about they're known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Actually one Gospel, but given to us from four different perspectives. But what's interesting, if you've read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of the writers begin with a Christmas story. And Luke, when he begins, he begins with baby Jesus in a manger and shepherds and angels, everything that we really like about Christmas. But Matthew, we saw, he began with a genealogy of Jesus because he wanted to show everybody that Jesus was indeed related to Abraham and David. And we said it was because Matthew is a Jew, he's writing to Jews, and all the Jews knew if he's really going to be the Messiah, the true Messiah, he's got to be related to Abraham, he's got to be related to David. But we also learned that Matthew went out of his way to include some interesting, colorful, creepy, maybe even R-rated characters in Jesus' family tree. And we asked the question, why would, G- why would Matthew do that? And we learned that it was because he wanted us to know that not everybody related to Jesus was very righteous. Not everybody related to Jesus was very holy. And this was very, very important to Matthew because understand, up until this time, every religion, including Judaism, anytime somebody wanted to act religious, it pretty much boiled down to this. My standing with God is based on what I've done or what I haven't done. And that's probably true of regardless of what the religion is. My relationship with God, if I do all the right things and I avoid all the things I'm not supposed to do, I'm on God's good side. And when I'm on God's good side, see, he's going to answer my prayers. And he's going to make sure that my crops produce. And he's going to make sure that I'm healthy. And he's going to make sure that I have lots of money. So in any religion, there's always people who are self-righteous. Yet, on the other hand, there are always people who feel like they don't have any righteousness in them. They don't feel like they have any goodness in them. In their minds, they're sinners. In their minds, they've done bad things. In their minds, they have a past. And they're thinking, wow, if being in a relationship with God is determined by how good you are, I'm probably going to be on the outside looking in. And we saw that Matthew, being a tax collector, was like, man, I can relate to that group because that's my story, right? And Matthew also understood that when Jesus showed up on planet Earth, he introduced a brand new way of thinking. Not brand new in the sense that it hadn't been around. Brand new in the sense that it had kind of been lost in all of the rules and all the regulations of religion. But Matthew, because he followed Jesus for three years, he realized that Jesus' teaching was very, very different. Because Jesus taught that people had access to God not based on what they have or haven't done. People have access to God based on what's been done on their behalf. And that's a new way of thinking. And that's why we saw when Jesus came to this earth, he said, listen, I didn't come to this earth for people who think they're good. I actually came for people who know that they're bad. And so Matthew knew that this story he was about to tell was so different, he went out of his way to make sure that everybody knew that Jesus was related to sinners, and not just any sinners. We're talking award-winning sinners, okay? And uh, we're talking about the kind of sinners you would not let into your home at Christmas. And so maybe with a smile on his face, Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And if I were to ask you to turn to the person beside you and tell them everything you know about Judah and his brothers, it would probably be a pretty short conversation. Because we don't know a lot about Judah and his brothers, but Judah actually had a very, very famous brother. His name was Joseph. 
And even if you haven't been, been to church very often, most of us, we, we know something about Joseph. We know that, you know, he had a coat of many colors. Uh, maybe you saw the musical with Donny Osmond. I don't know. But most people know something about Joseph. But not a lot of people know a whole lot about Judah and his brothers. But what's interesting is Joseph isn't mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. But God, God does list for us Judah and his brothers. And I'm just going to tell you, after you hear the story this weekend, this is the question you're going to be asking yourself. Why in the world did God choose Judah over Joseph to be in Jesus' family tree? Because if you've read the story of Joseph, everything about Joseph's story is remarkable. He had great integrity, great character. He was a man of great discipline, great faith. Just so you know, he's the only person in the Bible, the only character in the Bible where there is no recorded sin. Now, that doesn't mean that Joseph didn't sin, but there's no sin connected with his life. On top of that, as you're going to see this weekend in the book of Genesis, he's seen as a savior. He saves, he saves his family. He saves Pharaoh. He saves the Egyptians. I mean, if there was ever a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, it's Joseph. But when it comes time for the genealogy, God looks at the 12 brothers and he says, yeah, I think I'll pick Judah. And as I said, after you hear the story, you would never pick Judah. Which brings up the question, why would God pick Judah? And what we're learning in the series, it's, it's the point of the story. It's the point of the gospel. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 37. Let me just tell you the story of Judah. Now, by the time we pick up the story, uh, uh, Judah and his brothers, they have had it with Joseph. They're sick of Joseph. They can't stand him. They're jealous because he's daddy's pet. He's daddy's favorite. He gets special treatment. To make matters worse, uh, Jacob, the dad, decides that he's going to make, you know, Joseph this beautiful, ornate coat of many colors. You know, he doesn't do it for the other boys. They're wearing hand-me-downs, you know, from a thrift shop. But Joseph gets this beautiful coat. And then to really compound things, one day Joseph shows up. The brothers are out working in the field. Joseph's not the kind of guy that works in the field, I'm afraid. I doubt he ever had dirt under his fingernails. He was home cooling his heels with dad, right? But one day he thought, I'll go out and visit my brothers and see how they're doing. And he shows up wearing his beautiful coat of many colors. And I'm telling you, that is the straw that breaks the camel's back, okay? So you get to Genesis 37, verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers... They stripped him of the robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern, which is just a pit. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now, you got to picture this scene. They've just stripped their brother of his robe, so he's naked. They've thrown him into this pit. Now, understand, when they put him into that pit, their goal was for him to die in that pit. And then it says in verse 25, they sat down to eat their meal. And I'm like, What? They're brothers in a pit, left to die, and they're breaking out the bojangles, right? And so while they're sitting there, Joseph's over in the pit. I hear you guys. I know you're out there. I'm, this isn't funny. I'm telling Dad. Now he's going to be so mad at you guys, right? And the brothers are like, you guys hear anything? No, I don't hear anything. Give me a chicken leg, right? And they're just, they're just, they're just eating their lunch. And they look up and they spot these traders that are headed to Egypt. And it says in verse 26, Judah, okay, there's our guy. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? And his brother's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, think about it. If we just kill him, we don't really benefit from that. Maybe, maybe there's a way we can leverage this for our benefit. By the way, let me just say this. Judah isn't the oldest. And so God didn't pick him to be in the genealogy because he was the oldest. But I tell you what, he was the one with the most influence. He was an influencer. 
So Judah says in verse 27, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. And then suddenly mercy kicks in. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agree. In other words, let's don't kill him. Guys, that's the wrong thing to do. Let's just sell him into slavery, right? So I want to introduce you to Judah through whom our Savior came. Okay, so this is the guy. So they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, and the Ishmaelites, they take Joseph off to be a slave in Egypt. And I'm sure as Judah is watching Ish, the Ishmaelites head into the sunset, he's probably thinking this, yeah, he gone, he gone. That is the last time we will ever have to deal with Joseph. And then these brothers, they find an animal, they kill the animal, they shred up the robe, they put blood all over the robe, they go home to see mom and dad, and they say, Hey, Mom, we're sorry. And they break Mom and Dad's heart. And they said, we don't know. We, we, we were coming home today, and we found Joseph's robe covered in blood. No sign of him whatsoever. And they mourn of Joseph. And these brothers, they make a bond to carry this secret to their grave. And they carry this guilt for over 20 years. Now, this is Judah never breaks. Judah never breaks confesses, but he knows in his heart that he's ultimately responsible because he's the influencer, right? Well, if you go ahead and read the Bible, nothing else is said about the other brothers anywhere else in the Bible. But there is one chapter in the book of Genesis that's dedicated to a story about Judah. And in this story, Judah goes from being bad to being downright creepy. So let me just tell you the story. After the whole Joseph deal, Judah moves on with his life. Eventually, he gets married. He has a bunch of kids. His first three kids are boys. And when his firstborn son, Er, that's his name, E-R, when he's old enough, Judah marries him off to a woman named, named Tamar. Now, not the same Tamar that we saw in our series on David. Tamar was David's daughter. This is a different Tamar. So Er marries Tamar, but you'll notice it says in chapter 38, verse 7, Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. And that's all we know. We're not told why. You know, but there was a day when God looked at him and he's like, yeah, this just isn't working out for me, you know. And uh, it was an error that I made you. That's a little play on word there. And uh, so God kills him. God takes him off the face of the earth. Well, Judah has a second son. His name is Onan. Great names, by the way, in the Old Testament. You young couples, quit naming your kids stupid names and get some of these great names out, out of the Bible. But anyway, I said stupid. Your kid should be in Kid City. That's okay. Onan. Onan gets married, and this is what it says in chapter 38, verse 10 about Onan, what he did. And I can't even talk about what he did in church, okay? You'll have to figure that out. I don't know. But what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. So now Judah is 0 for 2 when it comes to being a parent, okay? God, boys are so bad, God's like, yeah, I'm just going to take you on home. He has a third son. His name is Shelah, S-H-E-L-E-H. Shelah's too young to get married. So Judah goes to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, because according to the traditions of the day, as her father-in-law, he is now responsible for her. So he says, Tamar, this is what I want you to do. I want you to live as a single woman until Shayla is old enough to marry. And then when he's old enough, I'll have him marry you. And he'll take care of you. And he'll protect you. And he will provide for you. And, and, and so Tamar, she moves back in with her parents. And she waits for Shayla to grow up so that he can marry her. And according to tradition, this is really her only option. And time goes by. Apparently, years go by. And over this period of time, Judah forgets all about marrying Tamar off to his younger son. 
And one day Tamar finds herself in a position where she can't really take care of herself. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. When you get to chapter 38, verse 13, it says, When Tamar was told, and she, somehow she heard through the grapevine, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. By the way, wearing the veil, that was a sign of being a temple prostitute. And then she sat down at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shela had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And understand, he's not tired. I'm looking for a little cuddle buddy, okay? He, you know, he, he, he wants something else. So he, he hires her as a prostitute. And this is where the story gets really get great. The payment for this transaction to have sex with her is a goat. I don't make this stuff up. I just read it and report it to you, you know. I guess that was the going rate, you know, for an encounter with a prostitute 3,000 years ago, a goat. And some of your ladies are thinking, she has no pride whatsoever. I would have loose held out for a new spring lamb or something like that. But anyway, it's a goat. It's a goat. So after they're done, you know, uh, Judah says, listen, I don't have a goat with me because a, a goat is not like an American Express. You do leave home without a goat, unless maybe you live in Fuquay. But he doesn't have a goat with him. So he says, I'm going to send you a goat. I'll get the goat to you. And she's like, well, okay, but I, I need a little security. I want a couple of things. I, I want your seal. And a seal was, sometimes it was something that was worn around the neck. That's what it was in this case. Sometimes it was like a signet ring, but you used it as your signature. If you were signing a legal document or you were making some kind of payment, you, you used your seal. Uh, but it, it really represented your reputation. And then she said, I want your staff. Because remember, he's a shepherd, and that represented strength. These are both very, very important. And since Judah, he doesn't have a goat with him, you know, he, he doesn't have much of a choice, so he agrees. And when Judah gets home, he finds a servant, and he says, listen, on my recent trip, uh, I hooked up with a prostitute, and I owe her a goat. Don't ask any questions. I just need you to get a goat. Go find this prostitute, give her the goat, and get my stuff back. So the servant takes off. He heads to town with a goat. He looks everywhere, high and low. He cannot find a prostitute that fits the description that Judah gave him. So he's going around town and, hey, has anybody seen this prostitute and showing her picture on his iPhone now? We haven't seen her. Doesn't look familiar to us. We've never seen anybody like that. So he goes back home and he says, Judah, I've looked everywhere. I cannot find this prostitute and give her the goat. And Judah's like, now, I don't know what to do now because if I go looking for her, wow, that's going to be embarrassing. If I start asking around, they'll just laugh at me and make fun of me. So over time, he just forgets the whole thing. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 24. About three months later, hmm, Judah was told your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. If you've ever read the King James, it says she has, what, played the harlot, right? She's guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And it's interesting. Judah does what every person does who has a secret and who's pretending to be something they're not. Judah gets real self righteous by the way have you ever met someone who was real self-righteous in regards to an issue and it's like well I would never and they're just adamant and they're very outspoken about it right and then later on it comes out that they had a secret and often that secret is related to that very area 
that they were so adamantly against. Sometimes we discover this about our politicians. A few years ago, there was a minister who took a real stand against the sin of homosexuality, and it is a sin, nothing wrong with that, but it's not worse than any other sin, but he made it worse than any other sin. He was very vocal, and he was kind of outspoken about it, but then it was discovered that he was meeting weekly with a hired male prostitute. Wow. Shakespeare even understood this. Remember what he said? Perhaps thou dost protest too much, right? Let me say this. Did you know that's human nature? Did you know that if you have a secret or maybe a point of shame that nobody knows about, did you, did you realize that sometimes it will manifest itself as self-righteousness, right? I'll be honest with you. I have very little trust for self-righteous people. And the reason is if I'm hanging out with them and they're really adamant and outspoken about an issue, sometimes I can't help but think, hmm, I wonder if they have a secret. Perhaps, perhaps they, they just protest too much, right? So Judah, he gets all self-righteous. Well, the audacity of my daughter-in-law. Verse 24, Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Let's have a fire. Let's burn her alive. And we read, we said, wait a second. Is, it the, is this the same guy that was going to kill his brother but settled just to sell him into slavery? Lied to mom and dad and said their favorite son was dead just hooked up a few weeks earlier with a prostitute. Is this the same guy? Same guy. Let's burn her alive. Ah. But Tamar has something that belongs to Judah, doesn't she? So when you get to verse 25, it says, as she was being brought out to be burned alive, right? She sends a message. She sends a message by a messenger to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize who seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah's like, change of plans, just check the weather channel, high fire risk today, no fire, everybody goes home. Okay? And he goes in to see Tamar and he says to her, Tamar, you are more righteous than me because I didn't do what I said I would do. Six months later, Tamar gives birth to a little boy. His name is Perez, and he's in the genealogy of Jesus. Wow. And we read the story about a man, a prostitute, and a goat. And we think, dang, Matthew, I don't believe I'd have told that. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you got a kid born out of wedlock. The parents are a dad, his daughter-in-law who was posing as a prostitute. I mean, this is like an episode of Jerry Springer, right? Or like, Matthew, come on, man. That's the kind of thing you keep quiet. That's the kind of family secret you keep a family secret. That's the kind of scandal you hope nobody ever, ever, ever discovers. You don't talk about that at Christmas dinner. Unless it's the point of the story. And the story's not over for Judah because about 20 years after he and his brothers had sold Joseph into slavery, there's a famine in the land. And Jacob the dad calls the boys in one day and says, guys, we're going to starve to death if we don't find food. But I heard there's grain over in Egypt. I want you to go to Egypt and get some grain. And they go to Egypt and guess, you've heard the story, guess who's in charge of the grain in Egypt? Joseph. He's now the prime minister of Egypt. He's gone from being a slave to the very top. Incredible story. You've got to read it sometime. 
And you got to remember, the last time that the, the, the brother saw Joseph, he's a young teenager. Now he's, he's 30-something years old, and, and he dresses like an Egyptian, and he talks like an Egyptian, and he walks like an Egyptian, right? So they don't recognize him. And I don't know if you've ever watched the movies, but have you noticed how they all wear the eye makeup and the mascara? Maybe he's got all that going on. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. If you read the story, he plays some mind games with them and he puts them through the ringer because he, really he just wants to know, have they changed at all? Are they still the same jerks I grew up with, right? It's a great story. I don't have time to do it justice. But this is how it culminates. Joseph has all these brothers in Egypt with him and he says, get out. Everybody out of the room except these men. They still don't know it's Joseph. So they're standing there. And says Joseph calls them closer. And a lot of theologians believe that Joseph maybe have opened his robe and showed them that he was circumcised because the only Hebrews were circumcised. And Joseph said, I am your brother, Joseph. Now let's think about this. What is Judah thinking right now? Yeah. Thank you. Somebody said, oh, no. Yeah. This is what Judah's thinking. What would I do if the roles were reversed? You know. What would I do to the man who was responsible for me being sold into slavery? And see, Judah knows what he would do because Judah knows his own character. And now he finds himself standing before the man who has the power over life and death. And Joseph's got them right where he wants them. And Joseph says to these brothers, who sold him into slavery, I forgive you. And not only do I forgive you, I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to take care of your family. And I'm going to take care of your herds and your flock. I'm going to take care of all of your possessions. But then Joseph says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me. I call this the 50-20 principle. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph said, oh yeah, you guys knew what you were doing. But because of what you did, I saved you. I saved your family. I saved Pharaoh. I saved all of Egypt. And in this situation, Joseph is the picture of a savior. And you would naturally think, wow, well, obviously, Jesus, the Savior of the world, is going to come through Joseph, the Savior. But no, God throws us a curve. And when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus, God said, I think I'll skip the Savior and go with the creepy one. Right. And I'll bring my son into the world through Judah, not Joseph. And Matthew, as he's writing his genealogy, he underscores that little snippet of history. Let me tell you why it's in the genealogy. It's because, see, on that day in front of Joseph, Judah was a picture of you and me. Judah was a picture of someone who deserved one thing, but God did something else. It was a picture of someone who had learned that God's grace and mercy and forgiveness is available. In fact, he learned that God's grace and mercy and forgiveness is available to people who haven't even bothered to make themselves available to God. Think about this story. Judah never broke. Judah never confessed. He never came clean. There's no record where he ever 
apologize, but at the apex of the story, Joseph gives to Judah the opposite of what he deserved. And God decided to skip Joseph, the righteous one, and he chose Judah, the unrighteous one. And it was through Judah that he brought his son into the world. Doesn't that just blow your mind? I, I, I told Gary Vett, I was sitting in my office this week, and I was just reading over my notes. I don't think I've ever done this before. Monday, I just got teary. I thought, this... I always had this concept. There was an Old Testament God, and then there was a New Testament God. An Old Testament God was a no-nonsense God. He didn't put up with anything. He would take you out in a heartbeat, right? And then I read this story, and I'm like, wow. God has always been a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you wonder why we sing songs like he's a good, good father. But that's the point of the story of Christmas. That's the point of the story of Jesus. It's, it's the story that no one has ever been expected to come to God on the basis of his own righteousness. It's the story that no one's ever been expected to make it into a relationship with God based on their own, own goodness. That has never, ever been his plan. And neither did God ever intend for anyone, regardless of their sin, regardless of their past, to say, I will never be at peace with God because of what I've done. I will never be at peace with God because of what I haven't done. I will never be able to be at peace with God because I destroyed a relationship. I will never be at peace with God because I hurt someone and I've never taken responsibility for it. And since I can't change the past and since I can't go back and fix the damage that I have done, I guess I cannot do anything to fix my relationship with God. But I want you to understand something. From the very beginning, that has never been the plan. That is nothing more than man's made-up religious approach to God. But as far back as the book of Genesis, as far back as the very beginning, what do we see? God gives us a picture of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it's to say, God knows, God knows this about the human soul. God knows that self-righteousness has never, ever made a person better. He knows that. God knows that the fear of God has never, ever made a person better. And no matter how much you promise and how much you try, promising to do better has never been able to do anything about your past. Promising to do better can't do anything about the relationships you've destroyed. It can't do anything about the brokenness that you've created in other people's lives. That's why our only hope has nothing to do with what we've done. It has nothing to do with what we promise we will do to try to make it right. It has everything to do with what God has done for us. So in Matthew, when he starts to write his gospel, he basically says this, before we even get to the Jesus part, before we even talk about the manger and the angels and the shepherds, I just want to remind you of how it's always been. From the very, very beginning, God has chosen the broken people, the messed up people of this world, and these are the people that have access to God. And do you know why that's so wonderful? It's because, see, that's your story. And that's my story. You've got to wrap your head around that. You are the point of Christmas. I am the point 
of Christmas. It's that God came into this world to extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. And this is what I've learned over 35 years of ministry. When we discover that what's most important in our lives is a relationship with God, not our past. When we discover that what's the most important thing in our lives is finding peace with God, just finding peace with God, not trying to fix ourselves. When we discover that the key to approaching God has nothing to do with what we've done, it's about what God has done for us. See, when that begins to shape our God view, and when that begins to shape our view of how we see ourselves and how God sees us, what happens is automatically things just begin to change on the inside. And when we get there and we, 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 we understand God and we see how God sees us, that's, that's when we find the grace to deal with our past. And that's when we find the grace to maybe start finally forgiving ourselves. Is that not true? That even when God forgives us, the person, the, the person that's hardest to forgive in our lives is ourselves. But if you begin to see yourself as God sees you, it's nothing you've done, it's what he did for us. And, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It never begins with, this is what I've done and this is what I promised to do. It always begins with, this is what's been done for me, on behalf of me, through Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you a question. As I wrap this up, are you here this weekend or are you one of those individuals who thinks I can never have peace with God because of my past? Well, I got great news for you. Because God is drawing near to you even though you've allowed your past to draw you away from him. God's grace is available to you even if you've never made yourself available to him. And we see that right here in Genesis 37, 38 in the life of Judah. And Judah became the great, 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 31, 32, 33. Great, great grandfather of Jesus. See, the story's not over because the genealogy continues. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, just learned about Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. She had a nickname, didn't she, right? And do you know why Rahab is part of the story? We'll look at it next week. It's because people like Rahab, people like Tamar, People like Judah, people like Matthew, people like you, people like me, we're the point of the story. Let's bow together, and I'm going to let you go. Let me just ask you before I pray, you still looking for peace? You can come to church to the cows, come home, give, serve, pray, jump through all the religious hoops. But until you realize that 2,000 years ago, God looked at the mess that we had made on planet Earth, the mess that we had made in our lives, 
And he didn't send us a financial advisor. He didn't send us a life coach. He said, what they need is a savior. And when you realize you can't save yourself, think of the habits in your life you can't save yourself from. Broken relationships. Maybe you have no control over it, but you couldn't save that relationship. What in the world makes you think that you could possibly save yourself for eternity? Even save yourself to be the person that God created you to be now. What makes you think that? So God said, I'm going to give him a savior. Think of it as the original Christmas gift. And God says, just so you know, I'm picking up the tab. So it's free. But you got to get to that point where you can get past your self-righteousness so you can say, okay, God, I get it. If I'm ever going to be able to deal with my past, if I'm ever going to get to the point where I can forgive myself, it's going to begin by finding peace with you. And I get that peace through your son, Jesus Christ, who came to be my Savior. Your first step to finding peace is getting to the point where you're willing to admit, I need a Savior. But you'll never get there as long as you're depending on your self-righteousness. Father, thank you. And Father, I, I ask, would, would you please, 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 would you please break us of our self-righteousness? For the person who's listening right now, who just keeps trying harder, keeps trying to get better, I just pray that they will see that that's nothing more than self-righteousness. And ultimately, it leads nowhere. For the person here who, and I know they've never admitted, Father, but for the person here, and I know they're, I know they're here because I talked to them, for the, for the person here who believes that they really are better than others, I pray that you would squeeze that out of them because that's self-righteousness and it stands in the way of them ever knowing you for who you really are. I pray that you would give each of us the grace and the wisdom to know how to approach you as you are and to receive the free gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness that you have made available to us even though we haven't even made ourselves available to you. And Father, most of all, I thank you for Judah. <laughs> and I thank you for this story. Because if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us as we sit here this weekend, we know this. It's really our story. We praise you for being such a good, good father. And you're faithful in all of your ways. And you bestow on us every good gift. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.